This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alex Steele is over in New York. It is Christmas Eve Eve. Um, the UK market wrapped up at lunchtime today. Everybody went home. Equity markets closed. European markets stayed open, uh, but finished fairly flat, to be honest. In the States, uh, you've got the Nasdaq down a little bit. The S&P's up a little bit. Inflation data is rolling over stateside, but quite slowly, uh, I think. Uh, but Alex, this, this definitely feels like the day before Christmas Eve. I think a lot of people have checked out. Yeah, you know, I was really expecting this kind of volume and trading action to be the whole week this week, but we had so no, much news happened. from like the BOJ to Musk and Twitter that it's, it felt like there was lots of action here in the U.S. and now it's just totally ended. Even though we had a data dump that did have some really interesting pieces of news in there, where there comes uh, con- inflation expectations coming down, whether you had uh, retail spending actually doing okay. Nevertheless, volume's really sad. It is. We are. We're. We're thinking ahead. We're trying to figure out what next year is going to look like. So we'll do. A, we'll do a bit of that uh, today on the show and try and get a sense of kind of what is happening here uh, and what maybe we can take from 2022 into 2023. Oh God, because, nothing. I hope. Good. Goodness gracious. Well, that's probably true. But I, I don't think all of the questions have been answered this year. I, I still think there's there's basically a lot of unanswered questions coming out of this year. When does inflation mm-hmm. uh, actually start to meaningfully come down? How quickly will that happen? What kind of recession, if any, are we going to see? Uh, what's going to happen on the geopolitical front, Ukraine, etc.? I think there's a lot of unanswered questions uh, coming out of this year. Uh, one of the questions that I'm certainly um, looking to try and get an answer to at the moment is how long are the rail strikes going to be carrying on for? Um, because the striking uh, story is, is spreading across the UK economy. The strikes are spreading across the UK economy. Uh, We've had healthcare workers obviously uh, going on strike this week. It's been a big week of strikes uh, and it looks as if we are going to continue to see those strikes into next year. The Prime Minister was speaking a little bit earlier on talking about his government's policy on this. What I'm trying to do is make the right long-term decisions for the country, for everybody's benefit. And I think we all know that the, the major economic challenge we all face now is inflation. It's inflation that's eating into everyone's pay packets, it's rising the cost of living. And I want to make sure that we reduce inflation. Part of that is being responsible when it comes to setting public sector pay. The Prime Minister, speaking in a canteen, judging by the images I saw a little bit earlier on and judging by the sounds that I heard there as well in the background. Um, Bloomberg's Marcus Ashworth Ashworth joins us now um, uh, to give us his kind of sense of of sense on all of these issues. He joins us from Bloomberg Opinion. Um, And Marcus, I want to start with your opinion on these strikes. Sunak says that he is going to stick to his guns. For how long can he continue to do so? I think he sort of almost has to, um, albeit... We all know the way out of this is one big fat uh, one-off payment, uh, which is sort of equivalent to some form of percentage, but it isn't locked in stone. So I I do think there's a way through this. Um, Clearly, the the nurses in particular are asking far too much and slightly ruin their copybook because of that. Also, I don't think the the strikes have had as yet uh, as big an effect as perhaps some people had been expecting um, and the government is now entrenched in this position because if they give in to, on one side, they're going to lose the lot and it gets out of control. So I think 
so that, you know, after so many U-turns from the previous, um, well, particularly from, from 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 Boris Johnson's government, that that became sort of endemic, literally, you know, not just once a week, but once a day, it seemed that I think Sunak needs to try and do something differently. And I think his approach here is that he's he's going to stick for the moment. Um, but though the Independent Repair Review Board will, will come out again um, by April time. Um, so it's a question of buying some time, as I said, perhaps with a one-off payment um, and, and having a proper look at it again, should we say, in April and, and a swift around and maybe there'll be a, a a better deal in the offing. So it's one of these sort of things is the government needs to buy time mm-hmm. because the longer they wait, inflation will turn down in their favor. So I hear that. I just you're looking at double digit increases for private sector workers. So how do public sector workers be OK with five percent? Well, because they have a magnificent better deal than all of us put together with whether not only their job security, bear in mind, everyone got full pay throughout uh, any form of lockdowns and furloughs. And at the same time that the pension system, you know, is just indexed in golden uh, situation, which is, you know, if you equate that in monetary terms, it actually puts a, a nurse on an average pay of around £50,000, which you know, it isn't what they see in their pay packet necessarily, but it's what effectively it's worth if you were in the private sector. Uh, and, and overall, public sector pay is higher than private sector pay. So it's with a lot more job security, and as I said, a much more uh, secure pension system. So uh, at the same time, you know, they're clearly 4% when we're at 11%, 10%, 11% inflation isn't the right number either. So there needs to be something in the middle, and that probably is as a one-off cash payment. But, you know, private sector wages, as far as I can see, is around 6% at the moment, depending on whether you include or exclude bonuses. I don't see the 10 11%, though, of course, uh, certain companies will, of course, pay that. But the problem is that that's where the deals are being done at the moment. Um, it was, uh, I think, Mingus Workers Today at Heathrow getting a really decent deal. I've seen a whole series of quite high-profile deals being settled at fairly high numbers, Marcus. Uh, and well, that's that private does sector. Put... They're, they're prepared to do that, aren't they? I mean, that's, that's well, what... but, no, but that's uh, Alex's point, though, isn't it? That you are seeing high-profile private sector deals being done at a relatively high level, and that then maybe makes it more difficult to settle, settle the... Um, settle the the public sector like the nurses are looking for what 19 percent yes but i think they know that that's that's not uh going to happen to be fair to them the reason why they're asking for that is because they're going back a cup cup two or three years and collating where they think they've missed out over the last few years but as i said there are looking just at uh at straightforward pay doesn't really include bonuses it doesn't include pensions it doesn't include job security so in the round, that's what these independent pay review boards are there for, to look at this in a, in a wider context. And what the private sector does is is literally what free enterprise dictates. That doesn't mean that the rest of us you pay for this for our taxes uh, are, are beholden to pay the public sector uh, quite the same way. I mean, there is a difference between the public sector and the private sector for a very good reason. Hence why they do have so much better benefits. I mean, I hear that in reality. I mean, it, I hear you. But that, but how do, when you go to pay your bill and you can't pay it because your take home is just not as is not giving up with inflation. How do you deal with that? I'm not sure I really buy all this. You know, as I said, I, I, I can't see why there needs to be absolute poverty in these circumstances. These are people in full-time employment, largely. And yes, they deserve probably to be paid more. I don't think anyone's arguing about that. It's the, it's the relative amount. And what, in essence, is the greater worry, which the government's trying to focus on here, is that with inflation at the peak now at around 10, 11%, and it is going to most almost certainly turn down. 
if you start locking in pay uh, pay rises of, of altitude of double digits, you are creating a situation which you get second round effects which go on on into spiral, and we all end up losing. And that is, you know, it's a battle of wills, um, and it, obviously the unionisation of the UK is far less than it was perhaps when everyone goes looks back at sort of the 80s when Margaret Thatcher was perhaps uh, leading the charge here. That uh, you know, it, but it's the public sector, and that is that is the real battle here. Um, is to try and get some form of sensible middle ground. Uh, and there are signs it, it can be reached, and there are more deserving cases than others in certain circumstances. But I think what the government is trying to do is is bridge the gap with possibly, I would imagine, some form of one-off payment to get to the next round, which will stay, be in April, uh, and then get a, quite a swift deal, which will fill in the gaps. But they'll have kept their so-called... Uh, well, the independent rate review boards would have kept their, uh, you know, uh, their line on it all, and and the government can be seen to be consistent and not being led and forced to to back down and and and, and put themselves into a. Okay, your view here is that if the government failed to do this, we are in a wage price spiral that the Bank of England's going to have to lean pretty aggressively into. Well, it, it certainly makes it much more likely. Uh, I, I actually think that inflation is coming down of its own accord in quite a sharp way. Therefore, you know, fixing it at a 10, 11% isn't necessarily the right way of doing things. I think, you know, if the private okay, sector... Okay, so, no, 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 okay, so if, 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 if inflation's going to come down anyway, what's the harm in paying these people more? Well, <laughs> because then you make it a lot harder. And the point is, it, the real issue here, we, as we'll find this year and certainly to next, is that the headline rate inflation will come down sharply, but we're going to have much more consistent core inflation. And that's the battle we don't know yet. How we're going to get from, say, 5% down to, say, the 2% target the Bank of England still is likely to persist with. I don't well, particularly agree with those targets, but mm-hmm. that's that's the next battle. Well, OK, to that point, when you say inflation looks like it's coming down quickly, how quickly does it come down? And, and, and where are you seeing those inputs the most? Well, it's mostly, uh, of course, what pushed out in the first place, which is energy and food prices. You know, we've seen commodity prices going down sharply. Just the base effects for April next year uh, is going to push, uh, you know, UK headline inflation down quite substantially. You know, there's a lot of moving parts here. We don't know what gas and oil prices are going to do over the course of the next quarter or so. But it, presuming that things aren't dramatically different where we are now, we will start seeing, even, you know, back having the chief economist is expecting a pretty sharp drop. It probably won't be until 2024 we get... Should we say back down to you know, obviously four or five percent or lower? But yep. you know, it could fall even quicker than that. I think probably just, just in time for a general election. Well, then, then be the breaks, they say. I mean, I don't think this <laughs> government's got 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 got, got much uh, uh, going for it. But if it can be seen to have been fair and not being beaten up by the uh, and given into the unions, whereby they they're blocked in at right at the top of inflation, that that surely is is wiser for everyone. Okay, you go ahead, guy. No, 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 I'm just, I'm... I'm yeah, yeah I'm, you're messing with them. I'm, Go for it. I know, I know. I'm having a little fun here. Marcus and I have got a beer on kind of the result of all of this. So uh, we'll, we'll see kind of... <laughs> oh, oh, you guys are talking Alex. your own book then. Sorry? Yeah, you're talking exactly. your own book. I'm always. Um, okay, so where is the biggest risk that you see that you could be wrong? So where's the biggest thing that you worry about that's going to upset this thesis? Marcus is never wrong. wrong. No, wrong. I, I realize yes. if he were to be wrong, where might he be wrong? Well, obviously, if, if if energy prices get out of control, if the government does give in, uh, I think it makes their task a, a much, much harder. Um, and yes, there'll be some slings and arrows both ways. I mean, the other real big 
question is, of course, if the dollar strengthens again, then, yep. you know, all of this is a waste of time anyway. So uh, it's just a question of, of getting some form of boring stability, consistency from government, which we've been sadly missing the last few years. Uh, I think that's about the only thing Rishi Sunak can say. He's been competent that when it does come to uh, two years time for the next yep. election, that he have, might have one or two things to say that at least he's calmed things down. Do you think we need immigration, enhanced immigration, to deal with the labour market problems, the shortages that we have right now? Well, this is a tricky one because I can see why a lot of people think that, you know, hang on a second, if, if next, for instance, warehouses, they're, they're, they're complaining about having to pay, you know, a pound more, that's what capitalism should be doing and, and you should, they should be paying more. doesn't mean you have to solve their problems by uh, by plugging it with immigration all the time so we should have higher wages to deal with the labor shortages that we're experiencing at the moment well that 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 is that was originally what boris was pushing on um not too much uh the cbi didn't like very much but i thought he had a good point there of course he he never followed it through and you know the point is is that you know seasonal uh immigration is important for certain sectors of the economy but that can be solved in, in different ways and i do think that we've got you know as it happens quite large scale um immigration just from different different parts of the world and i do think that though that whether rightly or wrongly and i, I have mixed opinions on this one that the, the the government as i said stability is, is is key and they've also got to get a grip on illegal immigration and i think that's something which we'll see over the next few months um hey marcus where do you think let's say that you are perfectly right where do you think the biggest misprice in the market is <laughs> Um, well, I don't think the things are, are, are hugely mispriced. I, I, I'm not a big uh, believer that, that you know, I, I'm pretty bearish on bonds, which are starting to move my way yeah. at last. Uh, I was probably a little How, bit housing about a few days. Right, housing, housing. I don't, I, I don't see housing going down anywhere near as much as some people do. I just think it's the, the nature of the, of the beast of the UK market. Small island, cramped, hmm. uh, full employment, strong wage growth. Um, I don't think interest rates are going out much more. It's so at maximum 4%. Uh, and I think also you've already seen the uh, it's credit spreads that the mortgage uh, lenders are, are, have collapsed. So there's a lot more aggressive um, requirement to, for banks to lend money. I think that's that's feeding through. So all in all, you know, clearly we're off 8% in real terms from the top of the housing market already. I think we maybe do another 5 to 10% absolute tops. But I wouldn't be surprised to see this time next year that the housing market is essentially flat. Please also have that view for U.S. housing. That would make me personally, talking my book, feel a lot better. Different dynamics. Certain areas, you might be lucky, but I think overall, U.S. housing has got more more troubles. Um, We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. I want to talk more specifically about what is happening in these markets right now. The the U.K. economy has underperformed, uh, but the U.K. market, the equity market, the FTSE 100, has outperformed. However, uh, if you take a look at the FTSE 250, uh, quite a big spread between the 100 and the 250. Basically, commodities have done well uh, in the U.K. market, the FTSE 100 this year. The financial sector has actually had a fairly good year as well. What is next year going Mm -hmm. to bring? We will talk about that next That is the conversation that is coming up. Marcus is going to stick with us. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York as I'm eating peanut butter. Guy Johnson is <laughs> I was wondering over why. You in were... London. I have to do TV at one. So, you know, I'm trying to eat at the same time. I multitask. 
Um, okay, so we just talked a lot about the UK economy and what's going on there. So let's talk about UK assets. The FTSE 100 has massively outperformed the FTSE 250. No surprise, right? As the UK economy struggles, the small cap stocks are going to struggle. Uh, commodities, though, have done really, really well. And the question is, could do better, maybe, if China reopens and it goes a little more smoothly than it's gone the last couple of days? Uh, Marcus Ashworth is still here from Bloomberg Opinion. So based on your more bullish view of the UK economy, you'd want to like buy the FTSE 250, no? Yeah, um, I must confess, I think it's one of the best trades out there. And But then again, I, I have thought that for quite a while. Um, so um, I'm perhaps not the best person to, to, to talk about this. But I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, we saw the reason why, I mean, the, part of the reason why the FTSE does better is because it's so much international stocks in it and it's weighted there for, um, you know, dollar earnings. And therefore, actually, the dollar strength is what kept the FTSE 100 up relative to other perhaps European indices. So in that sense, um, I still think sterling is relatively cheap, uh, not as cheap as it once was, obviously. At the same time, uh, I do think that the UK economy is is just flatlining, really. It's been flatlining all year. Um, you know, technically, if you look at it in, in G7 terms, it's done better than others. But you know, this year, we know it's not going to be coming up. So in that context, you know, I, I don't think it's really going anywhere, but it's not necessarily the most compelling reason to buy a stock market if the economy is in a mild recession. But I just don't see anything else uh, comparable in Europe that is necessarily any better. And I do think on a price earning basis uh, and most other you know ways of looking at valuing equities, the UK uh, 250 index is probably one of the standout buys. Um, Marcus, this being the cable, we should talk about the pound. In your scenario, is the pound stronger or weaker next year? Well, I don't think the weakness in sterling is over. And that comes as someone, I mean, I've, I've, I've traded sterling on many, many years. And when it wants to trend and go down, <laughs> there's nothing like a lead weight attached to sterling, uh, as we saw, uh, you know, uh, not, not, not so long ago. Um, you know, there's no doubt about it. If uh, the Bank of England does pause first or pauses around the same time as the Fed does at around 4%, should we say, and indeed the ECB decides to carry on hiking, uh, at the same time, as clearly yen is coming back. You know, this all this comes a bit inevitable that sterling is going to suffer. Uh, I think we're seeing that why it's it's hovering around 120 rather than uh, the 106 level the euro is. And you know, relatively speaking, the euro is doing a little bit better in the last uh, week or two, as you would expect, seeing how hawkish the ECB have been. So it's all relative. Uh, it clearly depends on economic performance as well. But in in rate terms, you know, yes, UK rates are higher than, than euros. But if the that gap is going to narrow. That will keep uh, the euro uh, probably holding up better for the moment. So I'm, I'm not particularly bullish on sterling here. Uh, I don't think it, it, the Bank of England cares about it, whereas I do think the ECB does care about the euro. And in that sense, you know, it's really more about how the dollar swings on both of them. Um, can we go to the euro for a second? What do you think the ECB does next year? <laughs> panic. They panic. When it gets it wrong. Yeah, I think how they, they get it wrong? straight Straight in the 2011 Trichet scenario here. I mean, you know, Isabel Schneibel is, is controlling um, and Joachim uh, Nagel of the Bundesbank are controlling what's going on in ECB now. I think Lagarde's lost lost the plot. Uh, she's tried her best. I don't think Lane has been listened to by anyone that's the chief economist. And we've got a scenario now whereby they're compromising and, and, and trying to, to, to reduce the amount of hiking that's going through by 
uh, you know, may perhaps bringing forward quantitative tightening to, to March, which is a big mistake, I think. At the same time as the collapse in the, the Teltros, that's the very cheap loans to the banking sector. You, know, you can't do all three things at once, you know. 75 basis point rate hikes dropping to 50, but it's still too big, I think, uh, especially if it comes every meeting. At the same time as you're collapsing the balance sheet by at least 1.5 trillion um, on, as far as the Teltro loans are concerned, at the same time as, as starting quantitative tightening, which is really a very brave thing to do when you've got you know Italian bond yields at 4.5%. When does, when does the mistake become clear, do you think? Because at the moment, they sound super hawkish. I was listening to David Tepper yesterday, um, well-known hedge fund manager. He was like, mm. I, the, the, the market treats Jay Powell like he's a teddy bear. The market now treats Christine Lagarde like she's a grizzly bear. I don't, I'm not sure that's the case. I think everyone knows she's she's not not in control of what's going on. She's she's having to sound uh, more more aggressive hawkish. She, she actually needed to be. That's where the subtlety of Draghi, I'm, I'm afraid, is, is being missed a bit. Um, Nonetheless, you know, she's trying to keep the impression that the, the, the governing council is together. You know, when more than a third were prepared to vote for 75 basis points, I'm sorry, that isn't together. But all credit to her, she was there and appointed because she was uh, her political skills uh, and, and as a mediating lawyer rather than necessarily as uh, her chops as an economist. And, and I don't have any problem with that. I mean, Jay Powell's not a, not a you know, PhD in economics and all the better for it, I think. So it's just with regard to, you know, how... They control a situation where, where particularly in Germany and, and countries like that, who are absolutely inflation phobic to a level they don't, they don't simply care. They, they feel they must keep tightening for their own benefit. And but the cost of, you know, between, you know, bear in mind, a lot of uh, mortgages, particularly in Spain, are floating rate notes. That is going to cause immense amount of problems at some point. Um, and then, of course, we always know Italy has has just so much debt. As indeed increasingly France has, particularly on the private sector, you know, there are a lot of lot of uh, things that can go wrong. And you know, look, the great thing about Europe, as we all know, is they, until it gets really bad, not only then, only then do they get their act together and start uh, doing things on the fly and, and and coming together and putting, you know, very impressively as they saw the COVID, the next generation EU fund. But there's going to have to be more. I don't know how they're going to be able to to, to raise the amount of money. Um, needed next year, which is you know even best part of half a trillion just in Germany alone. Um, at the same time, the EU is going to have to raise hundreds of billions. At the same time, as the EIB, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, on it goes. Um, whilst the ECB itself is no longer buying, but is actively selling mm -hmm. as well, passively letting it run off. It's too much at once. I don't think the European economy can handle it. I sincerely hope it can. I have to say, I, the European economy held up better this year than I thought it would. Marcus, it is always a sincere pleasure. Thanks for hanging out with us for the last half hour. Uh, we really appreciate all of your insight, even though we poke fun at you. Um, Marcus Ashworth of Bloomberg <laughs> Opinion. Happy holidays. Uh, enjoy your time off and happy new year. We'll catch you in 2023. Fed up next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Um, let's take a look at U.S. equities here. The S&P is up by four-tenths of one percent, but it's been a pretty choppy session. We did get a data dump, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But let me just digest the volume here. So the volume for the S&P is down 23% versus the 10-day average. To be honest, I expected this to look like that over the last five days, and we just started to get there today. We had a lot of action, a lot of news, we had some trading, and now everyone's home. So fair enough. Um, but you are seeing a rally up by about 17 points. A large part of that 
that is driven by energy as oil prices are up with the news that maybe potentially Russia will take off about 500 to 700,000 barrels of oil a day off the market because of the oil price caps uh, from Europe and the G7. Um, so that's one bit of news. You also have some downside stocks. Moderna's getting hit really hard. Carnival getting hit hard. I'm also a guy not totally unconvinced. This is not a let's just sell some winners uh, and trade it yep. up, take off some risk, manage your risk into uh, next week in the long holiday weekend. Yeah, I think lightening up on on. Everything <laughs> kind of risk is one thing. Lightening up on stuff that's done well is probably a reasonable trade as well. Um, I, there has been, as you say, but there has been movement this week, and and I think what that is is just emblematic, emblematic of the fact that we are in an incredibly volatile environment still, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. that is going to be certainly one of the themes that continues well into next year. Yeah, and also we're glad we had news because you didn't want me and Guy making up stuff for five days. That would have been that so would have been bad. yeah. A lot well, of shopping. Good entertaining for us, probably, probably not, not so much for everybody else. else. Um, okay, so a big part of that is what happened with uh, the data dump we got today at 8.30. So let me just break through some of the numbers here. And Mike McKee is coming up, and he's going to talk about, uh, get in more detail. Um, so personal income is actually up by four-tenths. Personal spending was up uh, by one-tenth. This is versus expectations. All of this, though, is lower uh, than it was in October. If you take a look at PCE and you back out uh, core, look at the deflator on a year-on-year basis, you're coming in at 4.7%, slowing sequentially. That's the good news. Um, same thing with the University of Michigan sentiment. Um, it held up. Uh, current conditions a bit lower, but held up. Same with expectations. Um, one-year inflation expectations down to 4.4, and also 5 to 10-year also below that 3% mark. So this is all the encouraging data. We're, we're okay. Real wages are still all right. We're still making money. We're spending some stuff. There's a little bit of caution, and inflation continues uh, to roll over. So let's get Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent, joining us now. Hey, Mike, what was your biggest takeaway from the numbers today? I think that everybody can go home for Christmas and not worry about the economy for a couple of days. He's <laughs> definitely talking a, his book right now because he's not here in the office. You, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or if you like Festivus or something like that, um, and it is Hanukkah too. But uh, if you have a story about the Fed uh, be, beginning to see its medicine work and inflation start to come down, the economy start to slow, but no imminent signs of a recession, well, your story's holding up. So you should be relatively happy uh, with the numbers that came out today. We saw not only a uh, decline in the percentage gain in consumer spending, but also in durable goods orders, uh, especially for capital goods, uh, essentially business spending. So both uh, took it on the chin a little bit (laughs) because Americans seem to be pulling back. Uh, We did see I should note, though, that uh, October was revised up for consumer spending. So it looks like uh, everybody got out and did their holiday shopping early. Yeah, I didn't, but anybody, didn't. I imagine everybody else did. Mike, um, so there's two questions that basically I'm, I'm trying to kind of get answers to at the moment, one of which is how quickly inflation comes down. Um, and I, I thought today's data was positive on that front. But I think the it's the issue around core that I think is the real challenge. And, and that's kind of the other question I'm, I'd, I'd like to kind of try and get a little bit of an answer on. Are we going to see headline inflation coming down fairly rapidly, but core staying sticky? And, and is that going to be the problem next year? Well, yeah, that'll be the problem next year. What and is going to end up happening, and uh, this is, of course, leaving aside the possibility of any kind of exogenous shock uh, from the war or, yeah. Um, just uh, OPEC deciding to raise prices, uh, but energy prices and food prices are falling, 
and goods prices are falling. So we're seeing headline inflation drop. We know that the uh, housing component of overall inflation is going to be falling. And so it's really the services industries, and Jay Powell has talked about this quite a bit, the services industries, which have wages as the major expense for their business, that are going to be stickier and more uh, reduce prices more slowly because they're still trying to make up wages. And the problem that we have seen is that there aren't enough people to take the job. So Mm -hmm. they're still having to pay up. So what do you think the Fed's going to be okay with? Because if you take, as you were mentioning, services and back-out housing, that fell, what, on a core level? That fell two-tenths of one percent. Like, do they like the trajectory and then they can downshift to 25? Do they have to see sort of a hard downward slope for them to do that? Like, how are they going to be feeling about this data? Well, I think the key numbers today in terms of 50 or 25 is the fact that business and consumer spending slowed they're seeing the impact of higher rates. And so uh, that's going to tell them they could uh, slow down to 25 basis points if they want to. Now, remember, we've got another employment report. We've got another CPI report uh, before we get to the next Fed meeting. And so the Fed will have a better picture of where both inflation and jobs are by then. But at this point, it looks like their path has been sort of ratified. Do they want to see it go down faster? Uh, they'd love it, but right now, if you look at the PCE core, it's lower on a year-over-year basis at 4.7% than the 4.8% the Fed predicted for the end of the year. So we're already sort of ahead of schedule. Mike, I feel like I haven't spoken to you enough about this. Do you think that Christine Lagarde is now out-hawking Jay Powell? And is that a communication issue or is that a policy issue? I think it's a uh, policy issue. I mean, it's partly communications in that communications play a big role in central banks getting what they want out of the markets um, to adopt their monetary policy and transmit it fairly quickly to the economy. But the ECB started behind the Fed and was much slower to raise rates. Remember, negative rates for quite some time. And so uh, I think that, yes, you could argue she's out hawking, but it's more of a calendar issue than anything else. Okay. Far ahead of everyone else at this point. But but I I was listening to David Tepe yesterday, and he basically said that the market sees Jay Powell as a teddy bear and Christine Lagarde (laughs) as a grizzly bear. Uh, It's a nice analogy. I don't think there's a whole lot of difference in their inflation-fighting mama bear attitudes towards their their economy cubs, if you want to strain Mm -hmm. the analogy. I like that. Uh, It's just the Fed's already way ahead, and so it's putting the clamps on the U.S. economy uh, much more strongly than Lagarde is uh, on the Mm -hmm. uh, European economy. They're also fighting kind of two different types of inflation. inflation. Yeah. Yeah, so then to that point... Who is more likely to blink first? Because if the Fed is is dealing with demand inflation, they actually can impact that. If Europe's dealing with supply-side inflation, they really can't impact that. They really can't impact that, but it's also unclear as to whether stopping or going backwards is going to make a big uh, difference in the economies there as well. Remember, they're still way behind in terms of the level of interest rates, so the amount of breaking they're putting out of the European economy isn't that strong compared to the Fed. So they could slow down, they could stop, but when you're dealing with the supply-side problems that they have, uh, you may not be able to, to even goose the economy by doing that. Mike, 
It's been a great pleasure this year. We look forward to your continuing coverage next year um, and make sure that you keep Alex on the straight and narrow. That would be kind of the only other thing I would add to that. Yeah, he's the only one who can, let's be honest. Done a a great job this year. (laughs) Keep her her spending money. (laughs) Oh, I I don't think there's any danger of that not happening. (laughs) This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I just need to check and see what's happening with Tesla stock. Probably should have done that in the break. It's been on a bit of a downward trajectory uh, and it continues today. Today, Tesla is tracking lower. We're only down by around three tenths of 1%. But if you look at the, the story over the last five days, the stock has been tumbling. We're down by 16% uh, over the last five days. This has been a brutal week uh, if you are an owner of Tesla stock. Now, one of the factors obviously behind all of this has been the the selling that we've seen from Elon Musk. Um, now, the drop this week seems to have finally registered with him. And he is now saying that he will no longer be selling Tesla stock. He will not sell Tesla stock next year. He potentially will not sell Tesla stock the year after that. He was on a, a Twitter Spaces uh, event last night talking about this, also pointing to a fairly brutal recession uh, in 2023. Ed Ludlow, as ever, is our go-to person to talk about this. Ed, let's talk first of all about his his belief currently that he will not be selling any more Tesla stock. He said things like this before and funnily enough, hasn't kept to it. Yeah. I mean, it's been a long old day. You know, you think about pre-market trading and, and Tesla shares were sort of substantively higher, right? One to one and a half percentage points. And then at the cash open, they fall as much as three and a half percent. So it was hard to gauge how the market trusts that statement, right? Um, Musk, you're right, said in April and in August that he would not sell any more stock having sold a meaningful amount already. And then he followed it up very quickly and sold more stock. And, you know, the the eight and a half billion dollar tranche in April, I think it was that way around in April, you know, that was that was directly tied to the equity financing on Twitter. So I think, you know, the, the conversations I've had with investors, I think they ask the question, well, why would he need to continue to sell at this point? So we take him at face value of what he said. So this is a really dumb question. If I own Tesla stock, am I owning it because I think yeah. it's going to go up? And and I know that sounds <laughs> stupid, but the reason why I'm saying it is it because I believe in a vision of Musk. I believe that these are the coolest EVs out there and I'm a dedicated person, meaning that like I don't need a pop over the next couple months for me to right. keep buying it. Well, let, let's start by saying why well, we don't know firmly why the stock is bouncing around the way it is. I mean, we're now down nine tenths of one percent, and two minutes ago we were positive. You know, and, and by the way, I'm seeing volumes at about forty percent below the fifteen-day moving average. Right, so that's a factor. Um, this is a stock where the retail investor is is very influential, and if you go on Twitter, you see all these people saying, "Now's the time, guys. Let's buy, buy, buy." We've never had a greater opportunity. Um, I think there's evidence that it is institutional selling that's happening right over recent days. And and, and I know that you guys have heard me say this a lot this week, but investors vote with their feet. And I think over the aggregate of many days, you know, the market signaling there, they are concerned about Elon Musk being distracted at Twitter. Um, but I think, Guy, you and I were talking about this earlier, right? Actually, after a good night's sleep or a long day's rest or whatever, the market seems to also be jumping on on Musk's comments about the global economy, and I think we are now he's, starting to get a bit worried. 
He is properly bearish, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I think he is bearish. And 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 this isn't that new, right? I think on the last earnings call was the first sort of admission we've ever had from him that the demand picture is not as rosy as once it was. You know, he said demand is harder to come by in a sort of flippant way. Um, but, you know, you look at what Tesla's doing, cutting prices in China, adding the $7,500 incentive or credit uh, here in the United States before year end. You know, those are levers that you pull when you want to um boost your demand for your product right right but i also have to wonder if this is a tesla specific pricing car ev issue or if it's a broader economic issue and, and the answer is i have no idea um they're also this well, is no, the time no, no, we're I, seeing a lot more competition coming on right and, and this is a stock that trades at 33 times forward earnings ford and general motors trade yeah. at five times forward earnings and you look at the relative performance of those stocks if you value tesla on a forward pe basis on the same level as gm and ford yeah. then tesla is a much less valuable company ed have a great christmas we'll see you in the new year looking forward to that thank you very much indeed bloomberg's ed ludlow up next alex's favorite subject we're going to talk about the weather ha, ha, ha. this is the cable with guy johnson and alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Some people are going to get stranded and not be able to go where they were going. So they may shop some more locally if there's things that are open. Or it could delay the, you know, I buy the gifts, but I can't get them to people. So I'm either going to delay my travel and deliver them later, or I'm just going to say, you know what? I hadn't bought those last 10 gifts. I'm not going to buy them now because I'm not actually even going to see whomever I was going to see. It, so it's yep. very, it's the other big thing is the gifts that could get stuck on, the, you know, in the trucks and the snowstorms. That was Mary Lou Gardner. She's Emphasis Consulting Associate Partner. We were talking about this insane weather that's hitting the U.S. Pair with holiday shopping because some people like Guy still have some presents to buy. And today was supposed to be that pivotal day in the U.S. And now that may not happen, which could hurt the retail industry. And that's one big part of the story. The other is this storm. And guys are making fun of me this whole week because now I seem to care about the weather, which is fair, but this weather is a big deal. We're seeing more than 1.1 million customers in 24 states are currently without power. That's including New York, Texas, and North Carolina. That's been very hard hit. Um, in North Carolina alone, more than 165,000 homes and businesses are in the dark. 6,000 flights canceled. And when I'm talking cold... What's the coldest you've ever been in, Guy? Uh, I don't know, really. I've been up to the top of a few mountains that have been fairly chilly. So, yeah, I, I, we're not experiencing the kind of... You're not experiencing the kind of weather that you get in in the kind of Chicago area right now. But, yeah, you go to Moscow and places like that where I've been a few times when it's been chilly. It gets pretty cold. Okay, basically, uh, I should point out that you're looking at like 10... Negative 10 degrees Celsius is where it is in Montana where it's negative 50. That's insane. I just saw a picture of someone's bed frame that was frozen. Anyway, we need to get more on this because it's going to impact the economy and lots of other repercussions. Uh, Brian Sullivan has been doing some great reporting for us. Brian, can you put this storm in perspective for us? Um, so it's one of the largest storms we've had in a long time. It's not really a huge snowmaker, except right along the Great Lakes there, where they're going to get up to four feet of snow um, in Buffalo and, and areas like that. But the, the real uh, nasty part of the storm is just how cold it is. Um, the temperatures dropped about 20 to 30 degrees within minutes yesterday when this front came through. And um, New York is going to be frigid tonight, so is Boston. 
Washington, D.C., all the big cities in the east. Why is it kind of, can you just give us a sense of the, the meteorological conditions that are causing this? So there's a big kink in the jet stream, and that is just basically pumping air out of um, western Siberia, eastern Siberia, rather, and uh, the Arctic region, and it's just channeling it right down into the heart of the United States, and then it's spreading out to the east. Um, where are we least prepared to manage this? Um, the, you know, it looks like the, uh, some of the outages are, are getting really widespread. I was surprised to see so many of them in so many states. I mean, almost half the U.S. states have outages now in the you know, tens of thousands, um, which I, it was kind of shocking to me. Well, uh, we had this in 2021, didn't we? How, how is it different to that, and why isn't the U.S. better prepared following... I, I, following You're talking I Texas, Texas, right? I'm talking about Texas here. Like, Texas was super bad at that point. Now, I know Texas is isolated, but I, I would have thought lessons would have been learned from that experience. Um, Texas is doing okay today. I mean, you know, the, given the size of the state, they've got, I think, um, twenty to 30,000 people without power right now, which isn't as bad as it was in, in uh, February of 2021. Um, the the main difference between this one and that one is that one just you know came straight down hit texas hard and it lasted um day after day after day this one is coming in very quickly but it's also spreading across the entire eastern united states as opposed to just that one corridor down the great plains there which is even so i mean honestly i i know I'm, i've been saying this all day but when i came to work this morning it was almost 60 degrees and humid by the time yeah. I get home with a wind chill, it's going to yeah. be zero. Yeah. I'm going ice skating with my family in a couple hours, and I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I brought like six sweaters, I brought earmuffs, <laughs> I brought leg warmers. Like, it, it could be 19 degrees and it could be 60. I mean, it, it, is is this a climate change thing or is this just an unlucky thing? There are some um, some scientists are saying that this is a, is a climate change thing. That the, these big extreme kinks in the jet stream um, that are you know, causing this, and they've caused other problems. They caused um, the floods in Kentucky over the summer. Um, that these are becoming more common because of climate change. And, of course, the deniers are, are saying, well, it's cold, it's winter, you know. I mean, how can you say that? Uh, but the, there does seem to be some kind of correlation to the, just the extreme nature of these events. We are moving into a world, though, where we are going to rely more on solar and we're going to rely more on wind for our power generation how does that kind of kit stand up to this kind of weather? Um, all energy gets tested, you know, uh, when, when these things happen. If the, if the winds are too much, then, you know, you have to shut the turbines down to protect them. If it's cloudy, then you lose the solar. But if you get frigid temperatures, you actually lose gas production because you get the freeze-offs. Um, you know, the, a good winter storm can do as much um, uh, production damage to natural gas is a hurricane. So. Yeah, and also um, restarting those things aren't necess- isn't necessarily a walk in the park either. So there's that issue uh, as well. Um, all right, we'll leave it there. Brian, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Brian Sullivan joining us on this epic storm, once in a generation that they're calling it. I'm just really glad that I'm not going to be in Massachusetts because cold there is like 18,000 times colder than uh, in New York City. Um, okay, Guy, well, this has been a year. This has been really something. Has, <laughs> so you, you think about back to the beginning of the year, we were we were dealing with COVID. You you obviously have personal experience of kind of what what long COVID meant, which was horrendous. Mm. We, but but that feels like a distant memory. So much has happened between now and then. Yep. 
the we've war. Got a war in a war in Ukraine, uh, an energy crisis that has come with it. Um, you've seen obviously huge sort of political events taking place across Europe as well. Uh, you've seen nations joining NATO. Um, it's it's been an, an incredible year, and you just get the question, just get the kind of feeling that. A lot of the, the kind of the questions we've asked, we don't have answers to yet. How does that war end? When does COVID mm-hmm. end? What is inflation going to look like next year? I feel we're coming out of this year incomplete. And also what makes me a bit nervous is that next year, everyone seems to be relatively, in some yeah. ways, consensus as to the first half being bad, second half better, definitely going to have a recession. If everyone's thinking the same thing, that makes me nervous and there's going to be a surprise. Um We'll leave you on that positive note. No, seriously, guys. Happy holidays. Happy New Year to you as well, Guy. Hope the family does well. To everyone, have a good year.